Julie Davies. Been looking for you all morning. Come up here. I need a microphone. <clears throat> you told me whenever I was ready, right? Okay. <laughs> she gave me this word like, what was it, three weeks ago? And she said, whenever. It was when you were preaching, right? So she said, whenever you feel like it's right. And so this morning, I felt like the Lord said it today. So oh, okay. go for it. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> well, I, yeah, so and I, it keeps coming up, and I felt like it was for multiple people, and it was something to share here because I, I just keep getting the same picture. And it's a beautiful picture in the story where Jesus heals the paralytic, and it's the story where the friends are carrying their paralytic friend on the stretcher on the bed. Um, they're doing whatever they can to get him through the roof down to the feet of Jesus, and, and Jesus says that the, the friend's faith is what is what heals them. And I felt like the Lord was saying that many people that have always been the friends carrying the paralytic have been the ones with the strong faith and interceding and having the hope and believing for the healing that they're actually the ones in the season right now that are on the stretcher. And that God was saying that it's okay to let your friends be the one to pray for you in the season of whatever pain, whether that's physical, emotional, or spiritual, that the Lord wants you to just rest and lay on the stretcher and receive, and that you don't have to be the one to have the strong faith for yourself, that it's the faith of your friends that's going to bring the healing, and that he just wants you to receive and to lay back and rest and allow yourself to trust that he's going to bring it through other people's faith and hope when you feel weak, that others are going to be strong, and that it's a gift that he wants you to receive and to let go and to stop having to strive or make yourself um, pray harder. So I felt like that was something, and that those of you that maybe have been in the stretcher in the past, that it's you're in the season where you're interceding and your faith nice. is going to bring healing. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> Nothing like sitting on a word for three weeks and getting called out when you don't expect it. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> uh, also, I would ask you to pray. Melissa and I will be leaving as soon as the service is over today, headed down to uh, Florida to do a retreat for uh, our network pastors and their wives. Uh, really looking forward to that, excited about that. Uh, Mike and Kim Smith. Uh, we'll be going with us down there, and uh, we're just going to love on them and uh, try to uh, celebrate them and take care of them for a few days. And <clears throat> in case you didn't know this, Riverstone is about to become a grandparent. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, Stonebridge is, is in the process of planting a church. It'll be our, yeah. It'll be our first grandchild, and I told David Eldridge, I, ho really, I really hope that in church world, this grandparent thing works the same way it does in biological world, that I, we'll just play with him, and he'll have to do all the work. <laughs> that's, that's my goal. So, all right. Uh, I want you to grab a Bible, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 2. You know, it's interesting that we still say that. You know, we, we, pastors have been saying that for a long time, just grab a Bible, how many of you do, you, do you bring a Bible? I'm so glad. <clears throat> I hope you still have a Bible. Don't hold up your phone, Terry Cantrell. <laughs> it's fine. You hold up your phone. That's fine. Phones are okay. Uh, 
You know, you can get those little handy-dandy read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year app on your phone. And, and, uh, but, but I hope you still have one that, you know, has paper pages in it and you can write stuff in the margins. That's Okay, so <clears throat> it's going to be on the screen as well. Here we go. Luke chapter 2. Now, before I read this, <clears throat> I'll set it up a little bit. So this actually happens right after the passage uh, that Julie was referring to. Jesus has healed the paralytic, and, and people are upset. Uh, people are angry because he healed this man. They, I mean, they, they pretty much got mad. The religious uh, leaders of, of the day pretty much got mad at everything he did. And so he heals this paralytic, and, and they're upset, not because he healed him, but because he said, your sins are forgiven. Because they didn't want his sins to be forgiven, apparently. Um, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and they're, you know, they're upset, and they're, you know, why did you do that? How can you say that? That's blasphemy. Nobody can do that. And so, and then the next thing we see is that Jesus is out to dinner with sinners. And they don't understand why he's doing that. Well, let me tell you, if you just read a few verses before, you understand why he was out to dinner with sinners, because the religious people were creeps. And that's why he was out to dinner with, with sinners, Okay. And so we want to maybe learn a little something from that. If you're going to be a religious person, don't be a creep, right? If you're going to be a Christian, don't be a creep. Be a Christian that welcomes people, not a one that pushes them away. Okay, so that's commentary for the passage, and here we go. Luke 2. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, that is not the right that's Luke. Uh, did, I, did I say Luke? It's supposed to be Mark. Can we use Mark chapter 2? I know I wrote down Luke on that piece of paper I gave you, but it's Mark. That's not even it either. Which one is it? It's Luke 1? Mark 2, verse 1. I need a real Bible. Just happen to have one. I think it is. Let me look it up and read it. We're learning stuff today. It's Luke. It's Mark chapter 2. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Did you hear that? While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many what? Tax collectors and sinners. When the teachers of the law, you can insert creeps, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat 
with tax collectors and sinners. And the disciples said, because you guys are creeps. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for the way that you work. Thank you for who, that you, who you are. Uh, thank you for the fact that it's not just here today a, a bunch of people in a room. But I thank you that, that you're here. And that there are things that you want to do. There are things that you want to say. And I pray that you would allow us to hear your voice. To engage your presence. To be led by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So who knows what today is? St. Patrick's Day. How many of you how many of you have on green? Let me just see. Yeah. There he is. Good looking guy, huh? That nice beard. Uh, today is St. Patrick's Day. And and when I was growing up, I always I thought that St. Patrick's Day was you know, I thought that's why they had that Lucky Charm cereal. I thought that St. Patrick's Day was about leprechauns and four leaf clovers. Really, and then I found out later on as a teenager that it was about green beer. <laughs> and the truth is, neither of those things is, is true. Uh, St. Patrick is an interesting guy. He, he was one of uh, the most outstanding and influential believers in history. And we, kinda, we, we need to know his story. If you're going to put on the green shirt and show up at church on St. Patrick's Day in green... Uh, you need to know about St. Patrick. I would encourage you, there's a book called The Celtic Way by George Hunter, and I would encourage you to get that book. Uh, it's a great read, and it will, it will help you. I think there's a shift going on in the world, in the Western world today, in, in the church world, that is a move towards more of a Celtic expression of Christianity than perhaps a Roman expression of Christianity, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit today. So around 400 A.D., Patrick uh, was, was born. He was growing up in northeast England. He was born into a Christian family. His grandfather was a priest. Uh, he was baptized as a child. He learned the catechism. You know, his parents were doing all the right things. How many of you, your parents taught you the catechism? Just my son? No, Okay. His parents were doing all the, all the right things. But then, as it happens sometimes, as a teenager, uh, Patrick decided to take a walk on the wild side. And so, Patrick, as a teenager, not so good. Uh, he's doing all sorts of you know, crazy things, and he's just misbehaving and living an unruly life and actually making fun of Christians and, in particular, the clergy. Now, I'm sure that he tried to keep that a secret from his grandfather. But that's what he was doing. Now, at 16, Patrick is kidnapped. At 16, he's kidnapped along with a, a, a group of teenagers, uh, teenage men from his area. They're kidnapped by pirates. I mean, nobody wants to be kidnapped. But if you're going to be kidnapped, be kidnapped by pirates. You know, because it's just kind of a great story. But they're kidnapped by a group of pirates, and they're put on a ship and taken to Ireland where they are sold into slavery. And Patrick is sold to a druid named Maluk, and he put him to work herding cattle. 
That was his job uh, as a slave. And he uh, served as a slave to Maluk for six years. And it was during that time as a slave herding cattle that he began to turn back to the Lord. Uh, You know, desperate times sometimes lead to desperate measures. And so Patrick starts to remember things that he learned as a child, and he starts to turn back to the Lord, and he begins to pray. And he begins to develop this life of prayer. He's literally living in conversation with God. And he says that uh, he got to a point where he prayed up to 100 times a day. And and almost that much at night. So this guy is engaging the Lord in conversation like 200 times a day. Uh, Here's what he said about it. After I arrived in Ireland, I found myself pasturing flocks daily. And I prayed a number of times each day. More and more, the love and fear of God came to me. And faith grew. And my spirit was exercised until I was praying up to a hundred times every day and in the night nearly as often. Now, also during this time, he's living among a group of people called the Celts. And the Celtic people were considered barbarians. They didn't, the main reason they were called barbarians is because they didn't know how to read or write. But it, it wasn't so much that. They couldn't learn to read and write. It's just that they didn't care. Uh, They had an oral tradition. Their community was all about storytelling and and communicating verbally, and they just didn't care about learning to read and write. And so he's living among them, and he's growing to understand their culture and their way of life, and he actually finds himself falling in love with his captors. He begins to, to have a real affection for these people. And then one night, he's herding his cattle on Slimish Mountain. I'll show you a picture of Slimish Mountain we have right there. That's Slimish Mountain. Now, when Mason and Grace Ann were young, I I think seven and five around, uh, Melissa and I had a chance to take a a mission team to Ireland. And we were there for a month doing street evangelism. And, And one day we had a break, and we went to Slimish Mountain. We climbed it. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing climb. It's kind of a hard climb, but we made it up to the top. And the thing I remember most about Slimish Mountain were the jackrabbits. Oh, my gosh. Rabbits as big as dogs. <laughs> Jumping out from behind rocks and out of bushes and running right past you. And what's that movie where the, where the mean rabbits kill each other? Watership Downs or something like that. I, that's what I thought I was, this is going to happen to us. These rabbits are going to kill us. And I mean, they were just these huge dog-sized rabbits. Uh, but we get to the top of Slimish Mountain, and, and amazing thing. But this, this is where Patrick spent a lot of his time, was on Slimish Mountain. And he's, he's there with his cattle. He's hurting, and, and he goes to sleep one night, and he has a dream. And the Lord comes to him in the dream, and, and he tells him one Simple sentence. Go to the seacoast. Your ship is ready. He's been a slave for six years. 
And in a dream, the Lord comes and says, go to the seacoast. Your ship is ready. And so Patrick, you know, I try to, I try to figure out, you know, how, how would I respond if something like that happened? You know, I might wake up the next day and say, wow, that was weird. Was that the Lord? Maybe it was the Lord. Maybe it wasn't the Lord. Maybe I should talk to people. And I would, you know, talk to a bunch of people. And say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And, and time would probably pass. And then pretty soon I would, you know, it might start to fade. But that's not what Patrick did. You know what he did? He got up the next morning and he went to the seacoast. It took him days to get there. It wasn't like it was just right there. He gets up the next day and he, and he walks for days until he gets to the seacoast. And guess what he found when he got to the seacoast? A ship. <laughs> his ship was there. And he got on his ship and he went back home. He retu- returned home and, and you know, by, at this point, by this time, he's, he's really fallen in love with the Lord and he wants to pursue God and so he's trained for the priesthood. And so this is years later, he's been trained as a priest, and he has another dream. And in this second dream, an angel comes to Patrick with a stack of letters. And he hands him the stack of letters, and he takes the letter off the top, and he reads it. And it says, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. We appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. And he woke up from his dream, and he knew that the Lord was calling him, guess where? Back to Ireland. To go back to the people that he had been enslaved to and take Jesus to them. To go back to the people uh, that for six years... He had been enslaved to and walk among them. He believed that this was his Macedonian call. And so he asked the bishops of England to send him to Ireland. And and St. Patrick was ordained as a bishop and he was sent out as the first apostolic missionary bishop in history. The first apostolic missionary bishop in history. You know, you know what he was? <clears throat> he was a church planter. Patrick was a church planter. And so he went to Ireland. And it was considered uh, impossible. The mission uh, that he went there for was considered impossible. He went with an apostolic team around 432 A.D. And he stayed there until his death in 460. Uh, and then he was buried there at a uh, place called Down Patrick, which is south of Belfast. This, this is where uh, he's buried. You can go uh, there today. Some pretty cool stuff. We actually have been there as well. Uh, his mission, as I said, was considered impossible. Ireland was a land with little or no Christian presence. And you couldn't just go into Ireland and say, here, read the Bible, because they didn't read They were a people of stories. The people were considered to be barbarians. By the time Patrick died, think about this, it's just 28 years that he does this. He plants churches and he 
makes disciples for 28 years. When he started, there was little or no Christian presence in the nation of Ireland. When he finished, when he died, Ireland was 40% Christian. One guy. One guy who started it with, with, with a team of people, planting churches, making disciples. This is what he wrote. <clears throat> this is why it came about in Ireland that people who had no acquaintance with God are recently made a people of the Lord and are known as children of God. For God gave me such grace that many people through me were reborn to God and afterward confirmed and brought to perfection. Now, I mentioned earlier that he had more of a, a, a Celtic approach to Christianity. It's what, what we call it today. is the Celtic way. Uh, more Celtic approach than a Roman approach. The Roman model for Christianity uh, is a lot like the model that we have in the West and have for, for centuries in the West. It's uh, presentation, decision, fellowship. Presentation, decision, fellowship. In other words, you preach the gospel if people believe it and accept it and make a decision, then they can join your group, right? Uh, we used to sometimes in churches, maybe you've been in churches where you say, we're opening the doors of, of the church today. And I always, when I, when I was a kid, I, was, I always wondered what, what that meant. You know, okay, we're opening the doors of the church today. Yeah, that's how we got in here. <laughs> <clears throat> but what it means is we're we're open for membership. You can join the church today by putting your faith in Jesus. So the Roman way was preach the gospel, and if people respond to it through a faith decision, then they can become a part of your group or your church or your family. Well, when Patrick went to, to Ireland and was living among the Celts, he had a little bit of a different approach. The Celtic model was fellowship first. We're going to live among the people. Kind of like Jesus having dinner with sinners. Kind of like Jesus being followed by tax collectors and sinners. Bunches of them. So they had fellowship first, shared meals together first, lived the gospel among the lost first, did ministry among them, and then came belief and an invitation to join and they, then they would start a church. So the way they would go into a community is they would go in as a team. They would live there. They would eat with them. They would work with them. They would play with them. They would talk to them. They have conversation with them. And then eventually, after relationships have been built, these people see Jesus in them, make a faith decision, and then Patrick or someone on his team would say, you know, we should start a church. And they, they would plant a church. And that's how they did it. So the difference is most Western churches operate and have operated through history in the Roman model, which says that you believe in order to belong. Makes sense. But for Patrick and his people, they adopted a model that says people belong in order to believe. That, that also makes sense. So... Uh, Two options, two different ways. It's not one is right and one is wrong. They're just different. But one says believe in order to belong. The other says belong in order to believe. Now, in the Celtic way, there are some things that they emphasized uh, as they're 
seeking to bring people into fellowship in order to win them to Christ. Now, here's the, the basic premise that you have to understand in the Celtic way. And, and this is true and should be true, I think, of, of no matter how, you know, no, no matter what your method for evangelism is, uh, this should be the basic premise. The Celtic people believed, or the Celtic Christians believed, that their purpose, their primary purposes for being Christian, glorify God, bless other people. Glorify God and bless other people. They, they didn't, their primary reason for being a Christian was not so that they would have a better life. That was, maybe that was third or fourth or tenth. First was to glorify God and second was to bless those around them. And so they were very big on hospitality. They loved people into the kingdom. If you could say one thing that was characteristic of them, I would say they carried the welcoming presence of Jesus. People just wanted to be with them. People wanted to be around them. They belonged in order to believe. Another thing about their faith is they were deeply Trinitarian in their faith. Um, you know about the shamrock, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Where this four-leaf clover came in, I don't even know where that came from. But the shamrock—it's a three-leaf clover—and this is what Patrick used to teach the people about the Trinity. And this is something that he wrote: three folds of cloth, yet only one napkin is there; three joints in a finger, still only one finger fair. Three leaves of the shamrock, yet no more than one shamrock to wear. Frost, snowflakes, and ice, all in water their origin share. Three persons in one God, to one God alone we make prayer. So they were deeply Trinitarian in their faith and in their theology. <clears throat> and their theology of the cross to me, is one of the most powerful aspects uh, of the way that they lived the gospel. Their, their theology of the cross, they were, remember, they're, they're ministering to and they're evangelizing a, a people who are barbarians, who have worshipped and served false gods, and who practiced human sacrifice. Uh, that would be another thing. Besides being able to, not being able to read and write, uh, killing your neighbors would also make you barbarian. And sacrificing your neighbors to your fake gods, that definitely classifies you as barbarian. So they're participating, these false, these unbelievers, these barbarians of Ireland that they're trying to minister to are making human sacrifices. And so their theology was, we're feeding the gods with the lives of strangers. Okay? Some. I mean, that's not a real exciting theology, is it? That was their theology. The theology of the barbarians is we're feeding the gods with the, through the lives of strangers. And so Patrick comes in with his people, and here's their theology. God doesn't want us to feed him with the lives of strangers. 
In fact, God himself has sacrificed his son so that you will no longer be a stranger but become his friend. That's a much better, much better theology. Much better. And so they had this powerful message of God is not asking you to kill for him. He's actually died for you. It's amazing, amazing theology of the cross. Uh, importance, uh, another thing that they carried was an importance of understanding the culture of the people that you want to reach. Uh, they were maybe the f- one of the first missionary groups really to go into an area and try to understand the culture in order to reach the people. Instead of just going in and saying, "You got here's a list of rules, you guys follow these rules, and once you get to a point where you can follow these rules, we'll let you join our club. That, they didn't go in that way. They went in first to try to understand who are these people, what makes them tick, and what do they care about, what do they value, because that will help us understand how we can reach them and underst- an understanding of them. They took time to understand what the people cared about. One of the things that I, I love most about the Celtic people was uh, their value for prayer. Uh, they were constantly praying and constantly singing. Now, because they didn't read and write, everything was passed along and back and forth and all around the community verbally. And so they spent their whole day praying, talking, and singing. Everywhere they went. Uh, One of the reasons that they were considered barbarians, as I said before, is because they were an oral community. They didn't didn't place a high value on reading and writing in education, but they placed a high, high value on community. And so verbally, uh, they shared things. And as believers, they became people of constant singing and praying. Uh, They had prayers for everything, everything. They had a prayer for washing your face in the morning. They, they had a prayer for uh, waking up. They had a prayer for going to sleep. They had a prayer for washing your face. They had a prayer for eating breakfast, a prayer for eating lunch, a prayer for eating dinner. They had a prayer for going out to get the wood. They had a prayer for coming in and building the fire. They, they had prayers for everything. They literally prayed all day long. Everything they did, you know, we've heard about, you know, Things, you know, do, everything you do, do it unto the Lord. They literally, everything they did, they did to the Lord. Here, here's an example of a prayer that they wrote for making the daily fire. You know, they didn't have central HVAC heat. They had to build a fire every morning uh, to be warm. And so here, here was their prayer for making a fire in the morning. I will kindle my fire this morning in the presence of the holy angels of heaven. God, kindle thou in my heart within a flame of love to my neighbor, to my foe, and to my friend. God, kindle thou in my heart within a flame of love to my neighbor, to my foe, and to my friend. The last thing I'll mention about their 
theology and just kind of the way they, they went about things is that they believed in personal responsibility for spiritual growth. Let me explain that this way. They were not consumer Christians. Uh, they believed for some odd reason that if they weren't growing spiritually, it was their fault. If they weren't growing you know, spiritually, they didn't say, well, I need to change churches, or I need to change small groups, or I need to read a different book, or I need to... They believed that if they weren't growing spiritually, it was because they were not doing the things that they needed to do. They were not putting themselves before the Lord. They were not spending time in prayer. They were not worshiping. They were not serving their neighbor. They were not ser serving the Lord. So they were, they were, they believed personal responsibility. They lived in community and they helped each other. Every person, every believer had what they called a soul friend. You got, anybody here got to have a soul friend? You need a soul friend. You need friends. You need lots of friends. You need at least one soul friend. A soul friend is not a mentor. A soul friend is a, is a partner or a peer, somebody who's, you know, in a place relatively the same as you, iron sharpening iron, that person that will encourage you and speak to you, that you can encourage and speak to, that person that you can pray for, that person that when uh, things are, are difficult, you can share the, the deepest, the darkest, the most painful things with. Everybody needs a soul friend, and I, I would venture to say that that's one of the reasons that God created marriage. I'm just going to ask a question, and uh, I don't, I don't, you don't have to answer this out loud. But if you're married. Your spouse is not your soul friend. Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, if they were. Terry Cantrell wouldn't have near so much to do. <laughs> would every problem in the world go away? No. But a bunch of them would. If you're single, you need a soul friend. Somebody that can walk with you encourage you, speak into your life. Somebody that you can speak into. If you're single and you're a woman, your soul friend needs to be a woman. If you're single and you're a man, your soul friend needs to be a man. And when you get married, you can have two soul friends. 
your spouse, and you can still have that soul friend that you had before you were married. As long as they make you a better soul friend to your spouse. I have a friend, he, when he got married, he said, he told me, he said, I stood at the altar, and when the doors opened in the back of the church, and my wife, my bride started down the aisle, he said, a tear rolled down my face, because I, I thought about all the, saying, all, you know, that when I would say yes to her, all the women that were missing out. <laughs> well, he told me, he really did. He really told me that. I was like, you're insane. And he said, he said, no, think about it, Tom. When I say yes to her, I'm saying no to everybody else. I said, okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so when it comes to having a soul friend, anybody and anything that comes into conflict with this one right here and me, is a no. So they had prayers for every activity of the day. They they took responsibility for their own spirituality. They had a, a a soul friend or a peer, someone they could be completely transparent and vulnerable with. They encouraged each other. They prayed for each other. They confessed to each other, so that they could be stronger in the Lord. Now, so what does all that have to do with us? A couple of things. So Patrick's first encounter with the Lord, he was in captivity. He was a slave. And the Lord spoke a word. And the next morning, he was free. He got up and went to the coast. Got on a ship and went home. And there, there are people here in this room they're stuck. Maybe, maybe you're in bondage. Maybe you, you've been battling the same habitual sin. Maybe it's a secret sin. That you, some of you just feel like you're in chains and you need a freedom word today. And so our prayer for you today is that the Lord would speak your freedom word. Go to the seacoast. Your ship is ready. There are people here today, you've struggled for years, and I want to say to you today, your ship is ready. Your ship is ready. Get on it. Second group, the uh, second time we know that Patrick had uh, just an incredible encounter with the Lord was what he called his Macedonian call back to Ireland. Well, understand this about a Macedonian call. His meant getting on a boat and going to another country. Yours probably doesn't mean that. It might. Well, it'll probably be an airplane. But you, more than likely, the vast majority of people here in this room, your Macedonian call has to do with where you are right now. God's already put you in the place. He's just waiting for you to do what he put you there to do. It could be there's some here, your Macedonian call is get on a ship and go back to Ireland or get on a plane and go to China or do this or do that. But for most of you, your Macedonian call 
has to do with what God has called you to do in your home, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. And so, what's your call? What is the Macedonian call? What is the thing that God is saying to you? Do this. Come on. Let's do this. God's not saying, you go do this. He's saying, come on, let's do this. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to do this thing in your neighborhood. Come on. Join me. What's your call? What's your kingdom destiny Macedonian call? So I'm going to get our our prayer teams to come. I'm going to go into a time of, of prayer and ministry, primarily those two things, uh, freedom, a freedom word and a calling. Uh, obviously, we'll pray for anything else. Uh, you need to understand this, too, about, about Patrick. Uh, everywhere he went, signs and wonders, <laughs> miracles, people being healed. He just carried the presence of God with him. Uh, the Lord was, was heavy on him. And everywhere he went, the kingdom of God emerged. And that's who we want to be, right? So celebrate celebrate him today as he served and honored the Lord. Uh, I ask you to stand. We're going to go into this time of ministry. Uh, We'll pray for anything, any need you have. uh, But especially I would ask you just for those two things. If you're locked up and and, in bondage, you know it. You don't have to think about that. Just respond. Uh, but if, you know, when it comes to calling, you may want to take a few minutes and just pray and ask the Lord, what's going on here? Is there something you want me to do? And then come and get one of these things to pray for you. God, thank you for the way you work. We thank you for St. Patrick and the way that he served you and honored you. And I pray, uh, Lord, that you would anoint this congregation with that spirit of hospitality that welcoming presence of Jesus that just makes people want to be around us so that we can share the love of Jesus with them. It's in your holy name we pray.